Well, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, and uh, hopefully you've got one in front of you, I want to encourage you to open it to Genesis chapter 25. We're actually wrapping up our series in the book of Genesis this morning. We've been at this for some time, and we will come back to Genesis at a later point. Lord willing, but for now we come to chapter 25. We've been focusing from chapters 12 to 25 on the events in the life of Abraham, and chapter 25 brings us to the death of Abraham. And I entitled this message, Obituaries and Genealogies. So I know that that already has all of you excited for what is to come. You know, the batting lineup of the 1927 New York Yankees, the first six batters at least, was referred to as Murderer's Row. As a pitcher, you had to face Earl Combs, Mark Koenig, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Bob Bob Musil, and Tony Lazeri. Four of them Hall Hall of Famers. You had to face those batters in succession. As a preacher, I kind of feel like the last few weeks have been murderer's row. Chapter 23 was all about the death of Sarah, and death was everywhere hanging over that chapter. Chapter 24 is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis at 67 verses. And then the first half of chapter 25 is nothing but obituaries and genealogies. And so I had a bit of trepidation coming into this section But having had time to study these chapters in some depth the past few weeks, I've been reminded in a fresh way that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness. So let's keep that in mind as we read Genesis 25, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 18. This is God's Word, and here's what it says. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Ledashim, and Lumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanok, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah. In the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites, there Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael. One hundred and thirty-seven years he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled... 
from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria, he settled over against all his kinsmen. Well, this is the kind of passage that we might be tempted to simply skip over. I mean, what possible insights can a death notice and a list of names have for us? What relevance could a passage like this possibly have to our lives? And I would say that this is the type of passage that you need to apply a bit of Sherlock Holmes methodology to. Now, at some point, you've probably either read or watched what this looks like. The great detective looks at a man's pipe, and he somehow divines that the man who used it was muscular, left-handed, with an excellent set of teeth, careless in his habits, and with no need to practice economy. And he gleans all of that or makes all of those deductions by scrutinizing that pipe. We come to discover he was able to glean all of these things because the remnants of the tobacco in the pipe were of a high-priced brand, far above what was considered adequate smoke. So the man must have been free to spend as he wished. Because it was charred down the right side, it was clear that the smoker was used to lighting it at lamps or gas jets, and so he must be left-handed. And since he had bitten through his amber, he must be a fairly muscular fellow with a good set of teeth. All of that gleaned from a careful analysis of the pipe. This passage is a bit like that. Read over it quickly and all you will see is obituaries and genealogies. But scrutinize it a bit more carefully and you will discover a number of significant truths. So I'm going to direct your attention to four such truths from this passage. Four things that we learn about. And the first thing we learn about is the mystery of divine election. This passage starts off with a bit of a surprise, doesn't it? Something we don't often hear about. Verse 1 says, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Verse 2 then proceeds to tell us that Abraham had six sons by her. And verses 3 and 4 tell us that he also had seven grandsons and three great-grandsons, all as a product of this union. This is apart from the descendants he had, or he will have, from Ishmael and Isaac. So when did that happen? I mean, didn't Abraham pretty much declare himself to be procreatively dead at age 100, like 40 years before the death of Sarah? And wouldn't fathering another six sons at age 140 and beyond seem like as much or even more of a miracle than the birth of Isaac? Well, it's a good question. I mean, the text doesn't actually tell us when Abraham took another wife. I think it would be better to translate the verb here, had taken. Abraham had taken another wife. So it's quite possible and maybe even likely that his marriage to Keturah happened sometime before the death of Sarah. Keturah seems to be referred to as one of Abraham's concubines. Listen to verse 6. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. Now, I know that raises questions about polygamy and the like, but we've actually encountered this before in Genesis, and we will encounter it again. 
The Bible's foundational chapter on marriage is Genesis chapter 2, and it's clear in that chapter that God's intention from the very beginning was one man and one woman. That's what marriage is. But I think this is part of what points us to the mystery of divine election. Abraham wasn't chosen because he was morally superior to everyone else. He was chosen by God's grace. But it's not just that he had another wife or a concubine that is surprising. He had six more sons, Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Factor in Ishmael and Isaac, and that brings his total to eight, eight sons. He had eight sons, but only one of them was the son of promise, Isaac. So why Isaac? I mean, why not Ishmael or Jokshan or Midian? And the answer is that we don't really know. I mean, we know that Isaac was the child of promise. We know that God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I've blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I'll make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So Isaac was the son of promise. And you can see this even as you look at the burial notice in verse 9. It says, Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar. Isaac and Ishmael buried their father. Now, it's interesting that both of them were there because Ishmael had been sent away earlier. But even more interesting than that is the order that their names appear in. It's Isaac and Ishmael, not Ishmael and Isaac, even though Ishmael was the older son. If we were to keep reading in chapter 25, we would discover that Isaac and Rebekah are going to have their own children. They're going to have twins, in fact, Jacob and Esau. And here was God's word to Rebekah about her boys before they were born. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So this idea of the older serving the younger is something of a theme in Genesis. And it's a reversal of what we might expect. Societal norms at the time were all about the firstborn son having a special place in the family and special rights and privileges as a result of his position. This was known as the law of primogeniture. But virtually every story in the book of Genesis involving sons reverses that order. So you can look it up for yourself, but you will find that God's favor rests on Abel, not Cain. Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau, Zerah, not Perez, Judah and Joseph, not Reuben, Ephraim, and not Manasseh. So what are we supposed to conclude from that? Is it that God doesn't like firstborns? No, I think the conclusion is that God is not bound by human conventions. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. His favor rests on the one of his choosing. 
This is the mystery of divine election. And this is true for us as well. We are not in Christ because we are somehow morally superior to others, not because we deserved God's attention, but because God in His grace chose to have mercy on us. The New Testament says it like this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Now, look, that may not answer all of the questions you might have about this. That's okay. There's a reason I said that this passage teaches us about the mystery of divine election. There is much that we may not understand about it. It's the second thing we learn about in this passage, and that is the already and not yetness of God's promises. So our series, if you've been tracking along, is called Between Promise and Fulfillment. And the ten- this tension between the already and the not yet is something that we have talked about a good deal. But it's important for us to revisit it here at the end of Abraham's life and see how it's worked out for him. Back in chapter 15, Abraham was given this promise. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Well, that's fulfilled here in verse 8, where it says, Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years. Abraham was also promised that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Now, he didn't experience that in full measure, But the fact that he had at least eight children at the time of his death, we don't know if he had any daughters, plus a number of grandkids and great-grandkids is like the first buds on a tree that shows us that fruit is coming. This is being fulfilled. He was living between promise and fulfillment. Abraham was also promised that he would be the father of many nations, The separate genealogy of Ishmael and his descendants shows us how that was beginning to be fulfilled. Ishmael's genealogy shows us another way God's promises were being fulfilled because Ishmael himself received promises from God. Here's what God said about Ishmael. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. And the listing of Ishmael's 12 sons shows the fulfillment of that promise. Now, none of these things puts a bow on the story. None of these promises were fulfilled in their entirety. That's the not yetness part of the equation. So here's how the New Testament reflects on the life of Abraham and his descendants. It tells us these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. That's the kind of tension we live in. It's this tension between the already and the not yet. Between promise and fulfillment. See, we've been given the promises of God. And we get a taste now of what the fulfillment of those promises looks like. But then we look at our world and we see that the fulfillment of those promises is something we only greet from afar. 
Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. That verse is actually a bit of a puzzle because it was written to the church in Corinth. And the city of Corinth was well known for making high-quality mirrors. They made high-quality polished brass mirrors. And a polished brass mirror could provide a person with a fairly clear reflection of themselves. But Paul's point is that the reflection of a mirror is no substitute for a face-to-face encounter. Now, those of you who've been doing a lot of Zoom calls lately, I mean, you know the reality of this. You've come to understand that with more clarity than ever before. I mean, it's great that we have the technology to be able to connect in this way, but it's no substitute for the real thing. Talk to a few of you who are grandparents in the midst of this who've said, you know, we haven't seen our grandkids in in two months. Some of them have had newborn grandkids. And while it's great to be able to see them on Zoom or through, you know, FaceTime, that kind of thing. You would be hard pressed to convince any one of them that seeing their grandkids on Zoom is comparable to holding them in person. Look, now we see in a mirror dimly. This applies to what we're seeing in our world right now. Last week, as part of our pastoral prayer for Pentecost Sunday, I read these verses from the book of Revelation. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Those verses are actually the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that he would make him the father of many nations. This is what we read in the book of Galatians. It says, Know then that, this, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before to, beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. Now, we won't see the fulfillment of Revelation chapter 7 until we come before Jesus, until we're gathered before him. But we do see a partial fulfillment of that now in the church. Now, I know that even just saying that will get you dismissed or ridiculed in some circles. There's a common perception that Christianity is a product of Western imperialism. It's not. The Christian movement was multicultural, multi-ethnic from its outset. Part of the reason Jesus' ministry was seen as so scandalous was because it cut through racial and cultural and socioeconomic boundaries. I mean, remember what happened at Pentecost when the church was born. People were gathered from a host of nations and each one of them heard the gospel being proclaimed in his own tongue. That's how the church started. That's a foretaste of what is to come. This is also how the early church grew. It's a common misconception that Christianity first came to Africa through white missionaries in the colonial era. Look, if you've read the New Testament, you know that's not true. The gospel first came to Africa through the conversion of a well-educated Ethiopian man while he was riding on a chariot. Now, we don't know exactly what happened. 
when that man returned home, what we do know is that Ethiopia and Eritrea became the second official Christian state in the world, and that that happened a full half century before the Christianization of Rome. And we could actually go around the globe, and you would see this. This is not to say there aren't stains on the record of church history where we've failed to live up to our calling, but the church is the most diverse, multi-ethnic, and multicultural movement in all history. And we don't see this in its entirety now because we live between promise and fulfillment. We live in the tension of the already and the not yet. But we actually experience that kind of tension in lots of different areas of our lives, don't we? I love this paragraph from Ian Duguid where he says this, We live in the real world of joys and sorrows, of successes and failures, of ups and downs. We live in a fallen world where things and people fail and fall apart. That's reality. And reality is often painful when those who suffer and die are our loved ones. But the Christian recognizes a reality beyond this reality, a story beyond history. He or she knows by faith that the painful reality we see all around us will one day pass away. It will be replaced by a world in which God will dwell with his people, in which he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Then we shall see him face to face, and the reality gap will be gone. See, we ought to look forward to that day with great anticipation. And in the meantime, Our calling is to be faithful in the midst of the already and the not yetness of God's promises. Third thing we learn about here is the all-in nature of true faith. One of the key verses in this passage is verse 5. And here's what it says. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. That little phrase communicates far more than we might think. Now, I say we learn about the all-in nature of true faith. I think the way the kids are saying it these days is full send. Right? To do something full send is to do it full throttle with 100% commitment without regard to the consequences. It's the equivalent of going all-in in poker. Now, look, I'm I'm not a gambler. gambler. I know I shared my gambling story from last summer with you as part of our Freedom and Boundaries series. But during our family vacation in California last summer, we spent an afternoon at the horse racing track in Del Mar. We weren't there to gamble, just to enjoy some horse racing. And we would each pick a horse before each of the races and then cheer for it as though we had placed money on it. But just before we left, as we were about to watch our final race, I actually snuck down to one of the betting windows on that horse, two of the, on that race, two of the horses had been scratched. There were only five horses running and I made a $2 bet on the favorite to, to, to show. He just had to place no worse than third. And my horse actually won and I collected a full 80 cents that day. It was fantastic. It was a great day. I kind of gloated all day, but the other thing I did all day is I wondered, man, I wish I had a bet it to win. I mean, then I would have won like, you know, $4 or something. 
Now, this is not to encourage you in gambling. I'm just saying that a lot of us live like that. We play everything really cautiously. We hedge our bets. We've got a safety net. We've got a backup plan. We don't really understand what it looks like to go all in with our faith. Abraham helps us understand what it looks like. By the, by the time we come to the, to the end of Abraham's story, we've been following him for a hundred years. His evolution is complete by the time we get to verse 5. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. And then verse 6 says, But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. See, all backup plans have now been abandoned. All of the safety nets have been cut down. And Abraham takes everything he has, and everything he has is really the promises of God. He places everything on God's promise. I trust in this fully. I'm all in. So what does it look like for us to be all in? Well, it means that our hope, our confidence is in the promises of God. It means that we abandon any kind of backup plan. It's a verse in Romans that addresses the issue of sexual immorality, but it has implications or application in a number of different contexts. Paul says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So what does it mean to make no provisions for the flesh? Well, on a small level, it means things like, look, if you're trying to lose weight and eat healthy, you don't keep a a secret stash of chips in the pantry. If you're trying to quit smoking, you don't kind of keep a a pack of cigarettes in a drawer hidden somewhere that, you know, just in case you want to go back to that. If your struggle is with pornography, you know, 20 years ago, that would mean you got rid of any kind of material magazines. Today, that might mean that you delete some apps that could be a source of temptation to you. You make no provision for the flesh. So those are examples of what it might look like on a micro level, but there's a way to do this on a larger scale as well. We do it when we stop storing up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. We do it when we start seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Not our own. So are you all in on God's promises? Jesus tells us everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold. Do we believe that promise? Is that where our confidence rests? In the promises of God. final thing we learn in this passage or we learn about in this passage is the limitations of death now i know we just had a sermon on death two weeks ago at the death of sarah but we need to revisit death here at the death of abraham there are two fascinating things said about the death of abraham and both of them teach us something about the limitations of death look again at verses seven and eight These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, 
an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. The last thing it says is that Abraham was gathered to his people. What does that mean? It's a phrase that's used numerous times in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. It's a phrase that was used at the death of Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac and Jacob and later Aaron and Moses. And we might be tempted to think, well, it's just a synonym or a euphemism for death. It's just a polite way of saying Abraham died. But in every instance, it seems to refer to something that happened post-death. So we might be tempted to, to think that, well, to be gathered to your people means to be buried in an ancestral tomb of some sort. But neither Abraham, nor Moses, nor Aaron was buried with their forefathers. So what does gathered to his people imply? Well, if Abraham was gathered to his people, doesn't it imply that his people still existed in some way? You may have heard that the Old Testament doesn't really have a full-blown doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. Well, it might not be full-blown, but there are hints of it everywhere. The Sadducees was a religious group made up of, that made up part of the, the religious ruling council in the first century. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And you might remember when they approached Jesus with a convoluted question about the resurrection that was designed to trip him up. They said, oh, there was a guy with seven brothers. He died and his brother then married his widow. This happened seven times in a row. So whose wife will she be at the resurrection? I mean, how is Jesus going to answer that? Listen to how he answered them. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead but of the living. Jesus tells them that they've been reading the Bible all wrong. And when when it says, I am the God of Abraham, it's saying he's alive. Now look, Genesis 25, 8, and he was gathered to his people, is not John 11, 25. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Genesis 25, 8 is not 1 Corinthians 15 with a full-blown discussion of the resurrection of the dead and all that will be ours or all that is ours in Christ. But that little phrase, he was gathered to his people, is a reminder that death is not annihilation. We do not cease to exist at the moment of our death. But there's another way we can see the limitations of death in this passage. Look now at verse 11. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. That's an amazing statement. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. Listen to a sampling of other places where that phrase was used. The book of Joshua begins like this. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving them to the people of Israel. The book of 2 Samuel starts like this. 
After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. After the death of Abraham, Isaac. After the death of Moses, Joshua. After the death of Saul, David. Do you see the pattern? If one of the limitations of death is that it does not mean the end of our existence, there's another limit to it that we may not have thought about sufficiently. Death does not mean the end of God's program or God's promises. God's program, God's promises are not dependent on any individual. Abraham gets a lot of space in the book of Genesis, and rightly so. But his death did not mean the end of God's program or God's promise, God's purposes. Commenting on the death of Moses... John Calvin said this, and it applies here to the death of Abraham as well. He said, this suggests the very useful reflection that while men are cut off by death and fail in the middle of their career, the faithfulness of God never fails. On the death of Moses, a sad change seemed impending. The people were left like a body with its head lopped off. While thus in danger of dispersion, not only did the truth of God prove itself to be immortal, But it was shewn in the person of Joshua as in a bright mirror. That when God takes away those whom he has adorned with special gifts, he has others in readiness to supply their place. And that though he is pleased for a time to give excellent gifts to some, his mighty power is not tied down to them. But he is able, as often as seemeth good to him, to find fit successors, nay, to raise them up from the very stones Persons qualified to perform illustrious deeds. So as we come to the end of this series, as we come to the end of the life of Abraham, it's not the end of the story. Genesis 25 tells us that Abraham's life came to an end, but the end of Abraham's life was not the end of God's purposes or God's plan. In fact, we know that the death of Abraham was part of God's purpose. We know that everything was moving towards its fulfillment in Jesus. And that ought, that ought to encourage us. Look, we are moving. We are continuing in the purposes and the program of God. Even death will not separate us from the love of Christ. So let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for your word, which is truth. We thank you for the way it can instruct us in simple matters. Thank you for the way it can instruct us in things related to life and death. And we pray for our own hearts, our own faith in the midst of all this, God, that as we are astounded at how you can work through individuals, that you would work, you would choose to work even through us, that you would choose even to call us to a relationship with you. We pray, God, that would not be something that paralyzes us, but something that motivates us to serve you, to go all in with our faith and with our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.